You're listening to Splendid Chats, recorded live at the Gasometer Hotel, Melbourne, on the 15th of September, 2013. It's time for Splendid Chats, the podcast that's the trip of a lifetime. Please welcome your host, Splendid Chats, both of them, Ben McKenzie and John Richards. Welcome to Splendid Chaps. Yes, the podcast that goes all the way to, to whatever, whatever number, number you're we work thinking up. of. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Could be any number between 11 and 11 billion. Who knows? Yeah. Who knows? The year 5 billion. Could be... Could be the podcast that goes all the way to Apple Stroke 7 or something and, like that. And welcome to this episode 9 slash women, uh, which is looking at the ninth Doctor and women. women. In Doctor Who, specifically... We're not just going to stand here and look at women. That would be wrong and creepy. (laughs) Because women have been very important to Doctor Who, and therefore it's important we dedicate one eleventh of our shows to them. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, no, it's going to be. It's going to be. I'm very excited about tonight's show. Uh, Now, for those of you who don't know, um, every month on the first Tuesday of the month, there is a a women's salon here, a feminist salon here in in the Gasometer Hotel called Suchet La Femme, um, and which is why, kind of why we decided to do this particular show here. We thought it would be a nice tie-in and a kind of a mash-up of the two shows. And I would encourage you that if you're interested in any of the feminist issues or women uh, discussions about women in media that come up during today's podcast recording, uh, if you're interested in any of those, do listen to Suchet La Femme. It's a great podcast as well. And of course, women is a perfect subject, Doctor Who, not only the, in the obvious way, looking at companions, but also it's a show that the first producer was a woman. Verity Lambert had a lot of input into what the show became. Uh, the theme tune, which is probably the most famous piece of electronic music ever, was realised by D.L.A. Derbyshire. Even the first episode was An Earthly Child, which focused on Susan, the, the Doctor's daughter, and also Barbara. Just Barbara. Barbara. Just Barbara. Awesome. All Barbara, all the time. <laughs> should have, there should have been a spin-off show about Barbara. Just called Barbara. Wouldn't yeah. that be great? And Ian would be in it, but not very much. <laughs> I mean, I love Ian... But he's no Barbara. See, no. Barbara. But anyway, the we... other part of tonight's show is the ninth Doctor, Christopher Eccleston. Yes. We're up to New Who. I know. How many people here got into Doctor Who with the new series? There'd be a few of you. Yeah. So, Petra, can you throw the fast return switch and tell us where we're going this time? Today, we're going back to the beginning of the century, a time of flash mobs, crazy frogs, and Bratz dolls. But it wasn't all good. <laughs> 2005 was the year of the volunteer in the UK, the year of the veteran in Canada, and the international year of fresh water. Boy, was seawater jealous or what? It also marked the end of the international decade of the world's Indigenous people. Sorry, Indigenous people, but it's back to us now. George W. Bush begins his second term as the 43rd President of the United States. In the UK, Tony Blair and Labour are back for a third time. And John Howard was now in the last epoch of his reign, a tyranny of fear which started way back in the McGahn era. Pope John Paul II dies, and Pope Benedict XVI takes over. He's announced as the 265th Pope in a live television special hosted by Zoe Ball, and, disappointingly to some, he's yet another white guy. In the UK, Prince Charles marries Camilla Parker Bowles. 
Camilla becomes the Duchess of Cornwall, and should Charles ascend to the throne, she will adopt the title of Princess Consort. Curiously, the Princess Consort was also a brand of car in the 1970s. <laughs> and the name of a character from Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. The chances of this happening are slim, however, since we all know the Queen can never die. <laughs> In keywords and search phrases, the most popular were Hurricane Katrina, North Korean nuclear weapons, London underground terror attacks, Kyoto Protocol, Cronulla riots, Chappelle Corby, Sodoku, and weirdly, David Hasselhoff. I think even he was surprised. The second manned Chinese spacecraft is launched, the Kashmir earthquake kills 80,000 people, and the trial of Saddam Hussein begins, the first free parliamentary elections in Iraq since 1958 are held, and, biggest of them all, the first 13th root calculation of a 200-digit number is computed by French mathematician Alexis Lemaire. <laughs> I'm sure you all remember where you were. <laughs> Elton John marries David Furnish. A Danish newspaper causes death threat-laden outrage with cartoons of Muhammad, and surgeons in France carry out the first human face transplant. Finally, face transplants are for everyone, not just soap characters and Bond villains. <laughs> Startlingly later than you might expect, it's the birth of YouTube, the world's finest kid non-rumor delivery system. It's hard to remember now, but before YouTube, it was basically impossible to watch videos of other people's cats. <laughs> Deaths include civil rights activist Rosa Parks and Australian TV legend Graham Kennedy, and the final episode of Enterprise becomes the last Star Trek adventure for television. There's even a twist ending, with 2005 gaining a last moment at the last moment. An extra second is added to December 31st. Called a leap second, it's the first one since June 30, 1998. I'm sure you all remember where you were. Oh, and Doctor Who comes back. But I guess they already knew that. Thank you, Petra. Yeah. You know, John, when you, when you emailed me about the history and you said, wow, 2005 was actually really cool. It was great. You yeah. were right. Yeah, it really was. <laughs> Did you watch the, the new series as soon as it came out? I, I, even before. I illegally downloaded the first copy oh, of the yeah. comic. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, remember? You, yeah, remember I back remember then you that. could watch it before it actually came out? I know. Because <laughs> it took how many months for it to get here? Yeah, yeah but, even, but even before the first episode aired in, in the UK, an early edit accidentally got, uh, got leaked onto yeah, with weird, onto the web with, and it was with something, different music. Yeah, and, different music. Yeah, yeah. The music was weird. No, look, we're pretty excited, but we want to we contain it. We want to keep it for the discussion, so let's just welcome our guests. Our first splendid chap is a writer, feminist organiser and podcaster. She has written for many publications, including The Guardian, Overland and The Drum, is a frequent speaker at festivals and other events, and hosts the live talk show, Chachet La Femme, a feminist Q&A in the pub, here at the Gasometer Hotel on the first Tuesday of every month. She also appears regularly on Joy FM on Katie's Cut Lunch with Katie Purvis. She's Karen Pickering. Our 
Our next splendid chap is an Aranda woman and national Indigenous organiser for the National Tertiary Education Union. She has degrees in theatre and political science from La Trobe and Melbourne universities and has written for various publications including The Guardian, Daily Life and Crikey, as well as for her own blog, Rantings of an Aboriginal Feminist. She's Celeste Little. Our third splendid chap is, well, she's been here before, so you can travel back in time to episode six clothes and listen to her previous biography. But since we last saw her, she's won the 2013 Hugo Award for Best Fan Writer, becoming the fifth Australian and first Australian woman to ever win one. She's Tansy Rayner Roberts. Please welcome Karen Celeste. And Tansy. Well, welcome all. Welcome all to the show. Yeah, thanks for coming. We'd like to start off by asking each of our panellists how they got into Doctor Who. Karen, how were you introduced into Doctor Who? Or should we come back to you because you're busy? No, no, I'm ready. Hello. (laughs) I'm excited. We just got very excited backstage listening to each other's biographies. Yeah. As well. We were like, right on. There was some hugging. Uh, how did I get into Doctor Who? Well, I, when I was very young, uh, I watched it and it scared the shit out of me. <laughs> Why did I bleep fucking? You can swear. Yeah, no, it was odd. You can swear on our podcast. Uh, it scared me so much that I would have nightmares. And I think, uh, is there anyone else who had this experience? That no, <laughs> no, no, no. Team up the back on there the, and a few people. When it was on the ABC yeah, about six o'clock, and you'd watch all the kind of you know non-scary shows in the afternoon, like Super Ted and whatever. (laughs) And then all of a sudden, shit got real. (laughs) And then I was always just really traumatised by it. But, yeah, I had enough... Luckily for me, I had enough friends who were uh, so excited by New Who that it was kind of pressed on me. And I was advised um, not to go back to the first episode of Old Who because that might break my brain box. But to start with Eccleston, and so I found my doctor with Eccleston. He's my favourite, so I'm pretty, yeah. I'm pretty stoked to be here, yeah. Awesome. And Celeste? Um, oh, well, I, I had the same sort of childhood thing, and it was just the music that I remember. I used to float past and watch it as a little kid, but um, getting back into it as an adult, I did it all pretty much ass about. <laughs> I actually... Um, <laughs> On, on this is a weird story. On my um, YouTube one day, a clip from Torchwood showed up. So I actually got into Doctor Who via watching all of Torchwood and going back. So yeah, that was me. <laughs> Good effort. All right. <laughs> I've already told my story. <laughs> Here's the question for you, Tansy: okay. Has winning the Hugo changed your opinion about Doctor Who? <laughs> Well, obviously, I'm too good for it now. <laughs> no, I, no. I was just thinking of if I was you, Tansy, I'd be putting the phrase since winning the Hugo into every sentence I ever said. Hugo yeah. Award winner. Yeah, since, Tans- since winning Hugo the Hugo, I, I think maybe a cafe latte. Yeah. It just occurred to me since that. Since winning the Hugo. <laughs> Petra, why don't you tell us about Christopher Eccleston? Christopher Eccleston was born in Little Halton, Lancashire, on February 16, 1964, the day after the end of the third ever Doctor Who story, The Edge of Destruction. When he realised he would never play for his beloved Manchester United, he gave up football to study acting, 
first at Salford Tech in Manchester and then at the Central School of Speech and Drama in London. He made his professional stage debut in a streetcar named Desire at the Bristol Old Vic in 1989, but soon made a name as a screen actor with guest roles in Casualty, Inspector Morse and Poirot in the early 1990s. In 1991, he starred in the independent film Let Him Have It, the first of the many real-life, working-class, politicised roles that characterised Eccleston's career. He played Derek Bentley, an intellectually disabled young man controversially executed in the 1950s for his role in the shooting of a police officer by his younger friend Chris Craig, played in the film by press gang's Paul Reynolds. In 1993, he took the role of DCI David Bilborough in Cracker, opposite Robbie Coltrane, which also began Eccleston's long association with writer Jimmy McGovern. The part brought him much wider fame, and when he asked to leave the show in 1994, his character was shockingly murdered by a serial killer played by Robert Carlyle. In the same year, he also appeared in Shallow Grave with Ewan McGregor, establishing another long-term professional relationship with filmmaker and Olympic ceremony designer Danny Boyle. His performance in the 1996 BBC drama Our Friends in the North earned him his first BAFTA nomination and he also starred in Jimmy McGovern's telemovie Hillsborough, which sought to reveal the truth of the 1989 Hillsborough Stadium disaster in which 96 people died. Fourteen years later, Eccleston described Hillsborough as the most important piece of work I've ever done or will ever do. He had roles in many high-profile films during the late 90s and early noughties, including Jude, Elizabeth, Existence and The Others, plus a string of number films, Gone in 60 Seconds, 24-Hour Party People and 28 Days Later. In 2004, he starred as the unlikely son of God in Russell T Davies' supernatural drama for ITV, The Second Coming, which earned Eccleston his second BAFTA nomination. He was announced as the Doctor on April 2nd, 2004, and only a few months later, the Radio Times named him the 19th most powerful person in television drama. Coincidence? No, of course not. The show and Eccleston's performance as the Ninth Doctor was a huge success, and a second series was almost immediately approved by the BBC. But when it was revealed he would not return for a second series, only days after the show had started, the tabloid press turned on him. He has since revealed that he left in part because of disagreements with the production team, but he remains proud of the role. Eccleston has continued to work on stage and screen, appearing on television in Perfect Parents, Heroes, Len Naked as John Lennon, opposite Doctor Who co-star Naoko Mori as Yoko Ono, The Shadow Line, The Borrowers and Blackheart. In the cinema, he has played villains in The Dark is Rising and G.I. Joe, The Rise of Cobra. And will next be seen doing so again in Thor, The Dark World. He is yet to reprise the role of the Ninth Doctor in any medium, unless you count his appearance as Dr. Laser Rage in the Sarah Silverman program. And that's Eccleston for you. Yay! So, Karen, you said he was your favourite. And he's often, I think, criminally underrated. Not a lot of people list him as his favourite. Why is Christopher Eccleston your favourite doctor? Well, maybe because he's the, the, the doctor I fell in love with. And, and that's the doctor that got me into the world. 
But I also loved Christopher Eccleston before and that biography reminded me why because I loved Shallow Grave when I was a teenager and um, Jimmy McGovern stuff and Cracker, like... Um, and um, our friends in the north, like that stuff's amazing. And Eccleston's always so sort of terrifying and intense mm. and, and he's really unafraid of seeming really fucked up, you know? <laughs> and I, so I thought that was so romantic for the Doctor, you know, that, um, and I think that was my, my if, if I had watched Tenant first, I might not have gotten Doctor Who, you know, because I think I, I would have been like, oh, you know, I don't really get the tragedy element or, or I don't really get the, you know, the other stuff. But Christopher Eccleston always seemed to me also like a really good lefty, <laughs> oh, yeah. you know, oh, like yeah. a guy with really good politics. So I was like, I will watch the show with this cool guy in it. And then I found that it was a great show and he was, he was compelling. I remember the show was announced to be coming back and he struck me as, as I was actually quite surprised I thought he was too famous just because I'd seen all these feature films he'd been in and also so intense. It seemed such an odd choice. Uh, and I still wonder whether... Because he did the one year and it got sort of announced accidentally within the first week that he was leaving. Yeah. And I kind of wonder if, if he, what he would have done in the second year. It's, almost, it's hard to kind of see what he would have done. It feels like he wanted to just have that one burst of the character. Yeah, and it really, you know, he's very, very intense, you know. Like, he burns very brightly and it's a really full-on season to get everyone in, back into you know, that universe and so I think it works really well. Why do you like him so much? Northern accent. <laughs> <laughs> much simpler. <laughs> yeah, no... I, it, it was the intensity and I think he played it with such a, you know, at times real darkness and it was interspersed with some really loving moments and I, it really drew me in. But, yeah, the Northern accent's really good. <laughs> and he has that, they have that joke about, you know, like, why, if you're really from space, why do you speak with a Northern accent? And he was like, all planets have a norm. So. Well, I, lo- I love it that that was the only time that they've actually, well, you know, in the new lot anyway, accommodated someone's accent because obviously you know, they didn't do it with Tennant and... <laughs> yeah. yeah. And they never brought it up for the other Doctors. Like Sylvester McCoy had a Scottish accent and no one ever mentions it as being weird. Like, it's just, okay, this Doctor's got a Scottish accent, no problem. Yeah. Whereas, whereas now, like, if they had a feeling that if they did that, it would be weird. Or in Christopher Eccleston's case, he's got a Northern accent... Well, we've got to mention it because that's weird. It's not weird. But maybe it's because his career had so often been about being the northerner and had been he'd, he'd played all these political roles about the north. And But it's one of those few times that Doctor Who um, acknowledges the outside world, outside the universe, and says, ah, and has a little kind of joke about it, you know. There's also the sense, I mean, this is also a new show for most viewers. Um, and and I'm, I'm very pleased that uh, there's a new edition of About Time has come out uh, covering... The first two years of New Who, which Mad Norwegian were, were lovely enough to send me a copy of. So it's kind of interesting there that Russell T. Davies really basically said he was making a brand new show. He was assuming the audience had never seen it before. He was aiming it more um, at a teenage female audience. That was kind of his skew in his head, uh, even though it was for a general family audience. So it's interesting that thing where maybe they feel like they have to explain it because everything is new in the show. You know, you can't assume any kind of history with it, which. I mean, how, how was that for you then, Tansy, coming to it as someone with history with it? Well, it was fascinating because to me it was just the next Doctor. There had been a long gap, obviously, but it was the next Doctor. And the fact that it was so new and so different was exciting. Um, we'd been talking a bit lately on my Doctor Who podcast, Verity, uh, about Richard E. Grant, who was going to be the ninth Doctor in that he, was, he starred in a webcast that 
actually screened just a few months before the Eccleston Doctor. And he was going to be the Ninth Doctor and he was going to be canon. Everyone was really excited about it. Um, and then they announced the actual show was coming back and he was quietly put on the scrap heap. The thing about um, Richard E. Grant was he was such, in a lot of ways, a really obvious person to be the next Doctor. He's the sort of actor people had been talking about him maybe being the Doctor for 20 years. Mm. Um, and he would have, you know, probably played it with long hair and a long coat and there are just certain things. There would have been probably maybe similar things with Paul McGann. That's kind of the unimaginative way to do it and what... What, what they actually did was amazing, bringing in Eccleston, saying, well, no, this is a modern show, so the Doctor can wear a leather jacket, you know, and he can use slang. He can say, you guys, and things like that. He's not just speaking either Scottish or RP. <laughs> and that was a really big deal, and I found it really interesting how I think most classic Who fandom actually accepted that. They were okay with that because this is modern TV. I think most, I don't really want to speak for all classic Who fans, but I will. (laughs) (laughs) I think that most people who loved the show before 2005 were terrified. Feedback. (laughs) Were terrified by this, um, this, this reboot because what if it came back and it was terrible? What if it came back and people hated it? Because people had kind of hated it towards the end, you know, in, in the 80s. What if, what if it was cringeworthy? What if people laughed at it? And the fact that it was Eccleston suddenly made a lot of us sit up and go, oh, so it's not going to be, you hammy know... It, it's not going to be hammy. It's mm. not going to have those elements maybe of that had crept into the 80s shows that we were a bit embarrassed about. Actually, maybe it's going to be awesome. And then, of course, Classic Who fandom devoted a year and a half to freaking out about Billy Piper being the companion. Um, <laughs> because she was a pop star and you know they can't act. And, and things like that. And, and, and people worried about that. But nobody really worried about... I don't think I ever heard anybody really worry about Eccleston and whether he could... Is there anyone here who's, a, who's an old Who fan who hates New Who? No, they, they didn't come to this month. <laughs> <laughs> They're, They're like, at I'm home. done with this stupid podcast. <laughs> it's finished. But I'm wondering, there must be some people who think that I, I, all I've, of the new Who is just I was going to say, I, I personally am more a classic fan than I am a new fan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I find new fan interesting, but I don't love it in the same way. Right. And, and I, I think we'll go into a lot of that next month when we talk about sex. Or you could read the essay in Queers Dig Time Lords, which is a book currently out that I have written an essay, and I believe we have some for sale over there at the front desk. Um, again, Mad Norwegian Books. Uh, yeah, I kind of wrote about the, the, the change. There's quite a big change, I think, in intent. And I must admit, one of them, which comes up in this Eccleston series, is there's a, a sense of making a more normal world than we've ever seen in Doctor Who before. A, a, a lot of people go home, there are magic phones, there are, there's a sense that it's... It's a smaller universe to me than it's ever been before. And that's because it's meant to be personal, to connect with people. But at the same time, for me, it, it, it loses some it of that. It contracted the show a little a, bit. A little, you. yeah. A little for mm. me because it's, you know, no one's going to run away to see the world and never see their family again now. Well, They're always going to come home. Yeah, this is the thing. And to get, I mean, to plunge shade into gender politics, <laughs> I think that the interesting thing about, uh, and something I love so much about New Who, is that it is really gutsy about bringing class into the narrative. You know, in terms of um, Rose's character being 
working class, living in the housing commission, having a life that is so limited is part of her journey to a life that is limitless, you know. And, and so they, they directly engage with that, you know, that she goes back and this, this smart, resourceful, you know, amazing young woman is like, I just what, get my job at the shop back and eat chips every day, like, this is shit, you know. And so I think it's really explicitly um, engaging with class in a way that it, it doesn't really, with gender, like, it's a little bit more scared of being a feminist show than it is of being a show that is asking hard questions about class, you know, because even Martha, and you know, in the way that the other companions come in, I mean, it, it, class is interrogated all the time on Doctor Who, I think, but gender, not as much. I want to say too before Tansy, you mentioned about you know, people were worried it would come back and it would be you know, cheesy and have all these. Yeah. You know, and of course, the first episode does have a magic wheelie bin, and there are <laughs> farting aliens two episodes after. I mean, it's not it exactly it's it's not no. exactly the West Wing or the yeah. Wire, is my point. It has those it's nods. not. And there yeah. were obviously, and I think there were a lot of elements like watching obviously for the the episode we watched um, Aliens of London, which is one of those episodes that a lot of people who love New Who get a bit cringy and embarrassed about that story. And I was watching it thinking, oh, there's so much in this story that's really good if I just mentally edit out <laughs> the farting aliens and the space pig. Oh, no, no, I love the space pig. I'm keeping the space pig. Okay. You can keep the space pig. But the thing about Rose going back was so important because mm. that had never been done before. Like, they always had this weird thing where, except for in the 70s when most of the companions held down a job because the doctor couldn't travel very far or was very good at parking... Um, most companions basically hopped on board the TARDIS and then eventually got somewhere they wanted to go, whether it was the place they'd left or somewhere completely different or somewhere completely random that was better than the TARDIS. And they, they, they went back to their life and we never saw them again except, you know, in specials where it was never discussed. Like there was no, hey, so, so did you lose your job? Um, we never found out what happened to Ian and Barbara, who got back two years after they left. When a student but, went missing. And, yeah. <laughs> Just want to point that out. After a student went missing. <laughs> went back because it's like, well, he couldn't control the TARDIS at all back then, so it was the closest they could get. We never find out, you know. And, and, and that was kind of part of what was wonderful about Old Who. Um, but I really like, I mean, the fact that in, in Aliens of London, Rose comes back and she's just come back to see her mum and hang out with her mates and the doctor has to hang around and wait for her at the beginning until he realises that it's a year late and that's hilarious. Um, but that was really interesting, the fact the doctor was willing to do that, even for half an hour. That's not really... like It's always been the, the companion marching to the doctor's tune and the TARDIS's tune. Uh, and then that whole thing of she's been gone a year... And now she's seen her mum and you can't change that. And, and what happens when you disappear for a year? And it's, mm. yeah. Well, the Elston year is, and, and someone did say on Twitter, I hope they don't spend the whole show talking about Rose. But talking about Rose, um, the, the, you know, the, the, it, the show did deliberately say, let's focus on the companion character, which in TV parlance terms you would call the viewpoint character now. So the idea that it is Rose's story from the beginning onwards and the Doctor empowers her was Russell T Davies concept. And that was an interesting change to go, because in some ways it's an obvious thing to do, to focus on that Well, because they always told us that was what they were doing. We were always told that the companion was the viewpoint companion, uh, the viewpoint character, and that was why you often had teenagers in the 60s, it was why you often had young women. We were told these are the earthlings, these are the ones who have to ask the dumb questions to make the Doctor look smart. They are the audience representative character, except that those act- 
actresses mostly didn't tend to get as much to work with as the modern ones do. Like they weren't always given the scripts to justify the fact that they were the person that the show expected the kids to um, to identify with. Mm. Except what happened was whole generations of kids an awful lot of them just identified with the Doctor, regardless of whether they were male or female. They identified with the Doctor because that was the character, often the character doing more interesting things. I, I had problems with Rose. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess on the class sort of narrative, yeah, that was that was part of it. But um, I don't know. I As far as... She, she had some amazing moments of strength throughout the entire series, but I think that they set her up from the very beginning as some sort of romantic fodder. Um, and she, a foil to the Doctor and he was seen as this romantic character and that was a part which I had trouble identifying with. I guess it wasn't until Donna came along that I really went, yes, here's a woman character that I'm there with. Yeah, I love Donna too, <laughs> but I always felt really frustrated that she was the companion and this was like my... my um ongoing frustration with Doctor Who having female companions. I mean, just even the name is... <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, like... It's a kind of, you know, there's a, there's a, there's so many more implications, as you say, for um, making the viewpoint character uh, a young woman because she's the one who doesn't know things. She's the one who has to ask questions, but she's also the one who gets rescued. She's also the one that people fall in love with. She's also the one who has feelings, fifis, you know, and she is always like, you know, a little bit irrational and a little bit sort of, you know, and and as you as you go through, I mean, Donna's the first one really who's like got no interest in the doctor sexually. No real, I mean, you know, she makes that hilarious joke about like, oh, you're just, look, you're just a streak of thin or something. What does she say? <laughs> I'm not mating with you, spaceman. Yeah. <laughs> and she's really dismissive, but she can see the um, excitement of the life and, and she becomes a, do- a doctor, of course, you know, herself. But there's that kind of, there's all those political implications when the role of the companion is always a woman and when the role of the doctor is always a man. It, it's so funny to me that people will say like, um, but you don't understand because in this universe, that's how it is. I'm like, have you seen our universe? Because <laughs> it's kind of the fucking same, you know? So why don't you make in that universe it better, <laughs> you know? Um, so, yeah, it's, it, to me it's not so much the question of whether there's a female doctor, although I would love to see that. But it, for me, I'd equally love to see male companions and I'd equally love to see female villains that aren't big fat gross women who fart. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's, do you know what I mean? Like, I think that there, there are women problems throughout the Doctor Who that I've seen and they kind of dampen my enjoyment. But like many things that aren't perfect, I still love it and I still, you know, dig it completely. But there, yeah, I, I watch lots of things that I think have bad gender politics. <laughs> One thing that I noticed, and we talked about this um, in the group that we were watching it with when it came out, was that Eccleston's Doctor is, is very much presented as an enabler. Like, it's it's... Yes, he's very clever and yes, he saves the day, but often he saves the day by persuading someone else to realise their own potential. And in fact, we we used to joke that every episode, somebody else saves the day during Eccleston's tenure. Like, it's almost never him. Um, It's Rose or it's uh, Kathika in in, um, The Long Game or or it's Captain Jack um, when he, you know, solves the the bomb problem in in that episode or it's, um, you know, or Mickey. um, And yet... With, Mickey. Yeah, poor Mickey. But, but yeah, the thing about it is, though, that with Rose, it feels like, you know, she really is 
kind of realising her potential through the series, sidetracked by this weird... To me, it always felt shoehorned in romantic attraction between the two of them. I never felt it worked with Rose and, and Christopher Eccleston's Doctor. I think, I think Rose is at her strongest in this first season because a lot of it is more the master and apprentice relationship which characterises Doctor Who. It, it wasn't always the case. Like The companion isn't always the Doctor's apprentice, but I think sometimes those are the strongest relationships we see. The fourth Doctor in Leela is another example where it kind of worked really nicely. So I liked... I mean, I don't mind a bit of romance in my Doctor Who... I do think we've all gone a bit too far with that, but I, I, I liked the fact that it was, it was more in the background, actually, in, in the first season or 2005 season. You could pretend it wasn't there if you wanted to for most of the time, or you could certainly believe for most of it that it was completely, like, maybe she had a bit of a crush, but that wasn't always relevant. Mm. Um, certainly that it wasn't necessarily required. It, it was definitely, I think, a, a non-sexual love in that I, first I, I series feel in a that, way that it becomes... I but think, also, I think that the power imbalance of their relationship is actually addressed in the stories, and I find that really interesting. And I think it's addressed more with Rose in that first season than ever, really, at any other point in, in the New Who. New Who. Um, because they do look at, um, you know, the, the way that... It, it is, it's a lot more like ordinary TV than Doctor Who ever has been before at this point. And it could as easily be the story of the 19-year-old who's suddenly hired by this exotic multimillionaire who takes her off on his cruise and she goes without thinking about it and now suddenly she's got this job that she's underqualified for but she rises to the occasion. You know, it's that story. Yeah. It's just that it happens to have space aliens in it. Well, it, yeah. it is quite interesting, and again, um, about time does go into a lot of this, how many things Russell T Davies had written down they were not going to do. Like, he didn't want to have alien planets. He didn't want to have aliens that we had to care whether or not they lived or died because he didn't think anyone would care whether aliens lived or died. Um, the the Gelth story, The Unquiet Dead, can actually be read as the most horrendous anti-refugee Howard-era storyline, if you yeah. want. It's about people pretending they need our help because they've come to take our jobs. And it's By jobs, we mean corpses. Yeah, yeah. But, um, but it's, yeah, it, it's, it, there, there's a lot of... It's kind of thing like you're saying. It's hard to know whether it's because he was deliberately trying to ease an audience into it and didn't want to frighten them off on this weird show, or indeed whether the television audience and the world in general has become a lot more conservative than it was since the show went off air, which I think is also true. It was that, but I mean, he queered it a fair bit as well, which is also quite good. I found it was, you know, some of the first um, first characters I'd seen that you know, well, Captain Jack coming in and being. <laughs> Whatever the hell Captain <laughs> Jack actually is. <laughs> Just you know, yeah. swanning around, well, being so hot and yeah, patching everyone. Drawing on all the previous stuff that he'd done, he actually injected a fair amount of that mm. into it and I found that it pushed some boundaries on that way that was new. Mm. Mm-hmm. He was not the weakest link. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great episode. <laughs> but the, I thought that also the Christopher Eggleston years... You know, when you rewatch them, you remember that. For me, anyway, I remember that it was how I figured out that Doctor Who, the Doctor, sorry, is tortured. You know, he is really, he is, he is dying inside, and not just physically. You know, that that the weight of everything on him all the time, um, and the weight of those decisions that he's made, and the weight of his past and whatever, make him this really tragic figure. And so that's, I think, the other reason why the the 
relationship between Rose and the doctor, Christopher Eccleston's doctor, is not sexual because it's romantic in a kind of 19th century mm-hmm. way. It's, it's, he's kind of Byronic. Mm-hmm. You know, he's, 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 he's uh, you know, dangerous. He is constantly taking risks. He has no kind of, you know, um, bodily self-respect. <laughs> you know, like he's, he's always endangering people. But like you say, he's got this kind of romantic narrative that everyone can be better, that everyone can rise to this kind of different occasion. And so that, it's like Rose is swept away in the romance of that rather than swept away by this hot guy. Mm. You know, yeah. I think it's it's bigger than just the doctor for her. Mm. And it's the fact that he needs her and it's not that he needs her as a romance. He needs her because he needs somebody. And I think what they did with the backstory was fascinating because one of the, the, again, fears, worries about Doctor Who, so much backstory, you know, <laughs> decades and decades and decades. What they actually did is, oh, and by the way, we blew up his planet while you weren't watching, <laughs> in, you know, previously on Doctor Who. Um <laughs> And that was so clever. And the fact that they wiped out all that kind of stuff. So it's like, well, that continuity is there, but you don't have to care about it. All you know is that he's damaged. He's been through a lot since Mm. you last saw him, which allowed new people, I think, to really access that because all you need to know was war, bad, damaged. And he has PTSD. He does. Yeah, I mean, very clearly, Eccleston exists people, all of the kind of, you know, classic yeah. symptoms. And people always PTSD. talk about in Dalek, which, you know, is held up as this, this amazing gem of the Eccleston era. But I was really, I was quite fascinated re-watching Aliens of London and World War III, which I don't normally get to re-watch because my daughters find the zip part scary. Um, how much it's there. The fact that he's the soldier doctor, the way he reacts to unit compared to how later New Who doctors react to unit. Mm. Uh, the fact that he's barking orders, that he's leading the pack, that he's running, that he, he thinks, oh, yeah, my solution to everything is let's blow stuff up. That's not the doctor we know. And it's not actually who he later becomes. This is the problematic doctor who needs to be fixed. Oh. You know, well, he, he needs, needs to be he liked. Needs to be liked. Mm. He needs something to hold on to. Mm. And he doesn't like humans, but he doesn't like anybody. And so the fact that he has to actually try and form a bond with these humans that mm. he's quite angry at. I was going to say, you did lead in something I was pondering about. I wasn't mm. sure if I should make the sweeping generalisation I will now go into, which is... <laughs> <laughs> it was it was a deliberate attempt to, to you know bring a female audience. That's what they wanted mm. to do, and, and humanise the doctor. When I'm hearing a lot of words here, that always struck me as the thing that female audiences react to, and one is hurt, wounded, fixing, There's hurt, a lot, comfort, hurt, comfort. There's a lot of this stuff that I don't generally find male audiences care that much about, but but, but, but female audiences more really seem to. In a way. Like, that's more stereotypes about what female audiences want. Because but you I'm guys sh- have just said, though, that, that you... You three examples of... Very of, small right. sample yeah, size, yeah. but sure. <laughs> uh, but I think also, you know, the idea that, that men don't respond to um, stories of trauma and PTSD and that kind of thing is a bit... Like, it, it, is, it is a dangerous generalisation yeah. because I think Because my sample size of one is I always go, oh, harden the fuck up. Yeah. <laughs> It just bores me senseless, no. story. Which is the kind of, you know, yeah, and that's the kind of que- the queering of Doctor Who as well. It changes that dynamic and changes that idea that there's one female audience and there's a male audience and near the twain shall meet. There's a fan audience and a popular audience near the twain shall meet. And the, the new Who tried to kind of not, I mean, I think pretty successfully not just sit on the fence and produce something that no one liked. I think they fairly successfully straddled those things. But, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think about the, the narratives, that, like, that male audiences like, you know, like Thor and the Avengers and Iron Man, 
you know, aren't they the same thing? They're a fucked up dude who just keeps blowing shit up and it doesn't make him feel good and he never is fully complete until someone loves him, you know? So this idea that that's what women like, I find really curious because the Transformers movie is kind of the same thing to me. I I think that's... The the thing I find most interesting about that is if you take out the explosions, that's basically... And and swap the genders, it's exactly what your average romantic comedy is about. Someone who's, who's fucked up and is not happy... Until they find someone who makes them happy. It's na- it's really all of narrative, isn't it? Like yeah. someone, yeah. someone's on a We've quest. We've solved the problem of narrative today. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, it's like it's it's basic um, basic narratology. You yeah. know, the quest and someone See, who this, is. This is you know, kind of my, yeah, my my rusty problem. My rusty Davies problem is I think he's really good at emotional narrative and he's terrible at telling a story. And I think he's, he can't write an end to save himself. Sometimes yeah. he writes four or five in a row just to see if one of them is going to well, kick in. Well, should we talk about how the Eccleston era ends? I, I just want to say, though, before we get on to that, that, that I, I loved all that hurt stuff, so I don't know what that means for me on the, <laughs> yeah. on the audience axis. <laughs> Welcome. Thank you. <laughs> Finally, I belong. Um, no, but I, I, I loved that. And partly it was because and my favourite moment of it is actually in The End of the World, when Jabe mm. finds out, figures out he's a Time Lord, and is like, you're not supposed to exist, which just goes to show that Russell T. Davies doesn't understand how erasing from time works, but that's okay. <laughs> but, but she says that, and he, he says nothing. There's just a tear on his face. I lost my shit mm. when I saw that. Mm. That was incredible. And the thing I like most about it is that we have never found out exactly what happened during the Time War. We know that he is somehow responsible that he considers himself to blame for the end of it, but that it was ultimately for the good. And yet also you have that devastating moment in The Parting of the Ways and, and Bad Wolf when he realises that, shit, there's a whole lot of Daleks here. Like, I killed all my own people yeah. to get rid of these guys, and here they are. And it's heartbreaking and awful, and you see his reaction to it. Um, but at the same time, I liked it because it was mysterious, and I hope we never find out, although... There are some suggestions that we might um, in the near future. I hope that's not true. So, I mean, I think it's, yeah, the audiences were very savvy and able to get out of it what they wanted. And I think, um, yeah, I think you're right. A lot of people could ignore the stuff that they, that's the great thing about it. There's so much going on. You could ignore the shit you don't like and just focus on the stuff you do like. The one thing I wanted to ask, and and I'm interested in everybody's perspective, but just before we finish off this first half, is... Christopher Eccleston's ninth Doctor, a bit of a creep. And I ask this because, not just because of how he interacts with Rose, but also how he interacts with other people. He's often rude to people. Um, He just barges in. Like, I mean, obviously other Doctors are rude too, but particularly the way he treats Mickey. (laughs) And he has this sort of lull at the end of Aliens of London, um, World War III, where he, he sort of grudgingly accepts that, Actually, Mickey, you did good. You saved the world. But you don't want to yeah. come because you're scared and I will respect that and save your dignity by pretending that I'm saying you can't come. Mm. Um, but also, not just... And obviously, it's not just the way that the Doctor treats him, it's also the way that Rose treats him. It's all a bit weird. But is, is he a creep, though? Like, I, I struggle with this. And I think I, also Tennant's Doctor, but particularly Eccleston's Doctor, because I like him a lot, but I worry that he's, he's a bit of a creep. I, I struggle with him a lot. And I think... Um I guess I got into it. The the reason why I like Eccleston's Doctor so much is because I like drama. So it was kind of <laughs> that's that's where I was coming at from. But I found 
I mean, there were some scenes. I just remember him yelling at Rose, calling her a stupid ape when she saved her father. And it was quite an abusive scene. So it was, it made me cringe. And then you get those sort of more light moments as well. He was, he was very up and down. <laughs> it was very much the... Um, it's funny yeah. you say that. Yeah. <laughs> the thing about abuse, abusive tendencies in the Christopher Eccleston Doctor, you know, re- I was re-watching uh, the, my homework for, uh, for today and, you know, there are whole, yeah, scenes that play out in which he's classic abusive partner where he, he's, he is on, on he's, you're ticking off the boxes of, you know, fine, go, go to your mum then. You know, I'm offering you the world, but if you want to go home to your little shitty flat with your mum, then that's fine. Which, you know, is textbook stuff for abuse within relationships, you know. And th- so it sets off my, my kind of, you know, feminist spidey senses often <laughs> because I'll watch it and I'll feel as though it, it does sort of encourage types of relating to other people that are a bit shit, you know, like he's a bully, Sometime he bullies Rose, he bullies Mickey. He he's awful to her mum. You know he thinks her mum is just you know a complete dolt. And I think there's a kind of arrogance um, to Eccleston that's really really hard to reconcile. But that said, you know I he's so deliberately and willfully unlikable that I like him. <laughs> you know, like he's so himself. It's like Ryan Adams. Does anyone else like Ryan Adams? You know. <laughs> It's like someone who's just so awful and so out there about, you know, like, this is me and just fucking, this is how bad I am. You kind of have to admire it, you know, yeah. I think it helps that as an actor, he, it's somebody that you don't expect, you're not surprised to see him playing an unlikable part. And actually the surprise about Eccleston's Doctor is when he's goofy and kind of funny. Yeah. Or and tender. Those, and tender. Mm. The thing about it is the Doctor's always like that. Mm. David Tennant's Doctor is horrible to people a lot of the time and people don't notice because he's David Tennant. Because he's, <laughs> he's so um, cute. Sorry, I had to get yeah. that in because I won't be here next month. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's true. And the Doctor has always had that tendency to, to turn, be unpredictable. He can be horrible to his companions, which is why the writing of the companions is so important because when you've got a companion like... Donna, or in many cases Rose, mm. who will actually serve it back to him, then it doesn't feel like an abusive relationship anymore. Exactly. Whereas, uh, as I see last time, we were talking about the Sixth Doctor and Perry and, and when he's, uh, the bickering in the TARDIS, when he's being horrible to her and she's horrible back at him, that's kind of awesome. When he's horrible and she like, looks at the floor and says, yeah, whatever you say, Doctor, that's really uncomfortable. Mm. The first Doctor was appalling for large chunks of his run. Pretty much all that, I mean, oh my God, the third doctor is, yes, I will take your sandwich and I will eat it. (laughs) Um, But what years were they in? No, but this thing, different eras, yes, but also the doctor's character has not always been, I mean, he's always been an anti-hero. That's who he Mm. is. He's not necessarily a nice guy. It's just because when you're a Doctor Who fan, you do tend to get rather attached (laughs) that we let him get away with very bad behaviour. And that's sort of part of it. But he is mercurial uh, and Eccleston did that very, very well, the switching from angry to funny to yeah. goofy to sad and mm. tragic and, and broken and needs to and be And even fixed. occasionally, yeah, those mm. kind of tender, loving moments where he showed, like, real Absolutely, affection. and it makes those matters... Um, but also there is progression through the series and it's not something we always have. The Doctor doesn't always get character development. Um, it's one of those things the Doctor should always have had 
But, of course, they didn't always plan ahead, sometimes from story to story, let alone across seasons. In this season, they knew they had Eccleston for a season. They gave him an arc. At the end of it, he is a better person than he was when he started. Christopher Eccleston himself, despite the problems he had with the crew, which is partly why he left, loved the role. He said that he was very proud of it. Um, But he also, I mean, he approached that role in the same way he approached all his roles, which was that it had to be real and it had to say something. And, and the quote that I want to read out is what he thinks about his television career, which I agree with. I've kept my word with the audience and not fed them rubbish. I've done some rubbish elsewhere, though, and I've let myself down in that way, but I think I can hold my head up. I don't think I've ever done it for the money on British telly. I always choose roles with my heart. Now, we have had more questions left than we have ever had before. So, second half of the show is pretty much going to be nothing but questions. We should mention uh, that, in fact, all four of the Splendid Shows are involved in a show for Melbourne Fringe called Songs for Europe, two short plays about Eurovision. Look, I'm going to start with this. Very first question. Uh, are there any Splendid Chaps events in December? We could talk about new Doctor Who Capaldi Christmas specials. That's a question from Lisa. Thank you for answering that, asking the question, Lisa. Why, yes, there are. Um, <laughs> there will be a Christmas special show. Yeah. Look, let's, let's quickly go in order, shall we? Next month is our show 10 Slash Sex, where we'll be looking at the sexualisation or not of Doctor Who and the David Tennant era. One of our guests will be Triple R Smart Arts presenter Richard Watts. Who's actually in the front row, so that's convenient. We will have a, a musical performance from Blue Turtle Shell performing their song, uh, which is called I Have a Heterosexual Man Crush on David Tennant. <laughs> Which seemed, which seemed most appropriate. They should just gay up. <laughs> yeah, I don't know and why. And just have it's... just a proper man crush on him. And it's, it's probably going to be here, but we haven't confirmed the venue. Yeah, we'll, we'll watch yeah. the website. We will confirm it. It will be on um, the 13th of October. In November, on the 21st of November, is our 50th anniversary special at Acme. It's in Cinema One in Acme, so it's going to be a big... We've got um, a full band. The Time Lads will be our house band for the <laughs> evening. Casey Bonetto of Keating the Musical is writing us a song. Um, and I have no idea who our guests are. Uh, Justin uh, Hamilton. Is oh, Justin Hamilton, them. that's right. Justin Hamilton will be on the show. We'll be looking at 11 slash the future. The future. We, we have a show coming up at the City Library in November where we will be looking at companions. We have a show for Stonington Libraries, which I think is in Turak, where we're looking at things I learned from Doctor Who. And we're hoping uh, very shortly in the next week to launch a crowdfunding campaign to try and pre-sell enough tickets and sell enough merch... Uh, to go to Sydney and do a show up there because we've got some Sydney listeners. If you're a Sydney listener, watch out for the website. (laughs) Hooray! We're going to come to your house. (laughs) Just like you've come to ours. When I say house... um, (laughs) We mean house. I mean house. Um, So, yeah, watch out for that. Um, That'll start up and uh, you will be able to, even if you're not going to Sydney, um, buy the badges that we have. So here we're going to do some Splendid Chaps T-shirts... Ooh, exclusively for the Kickstarter, uh, well, for the possible campaign. Possible and it's going to be uh, it's gonna be good. So watch out for that, hopefully launching in the next week or so. And December is the Christmas special where we'll be looking at all the things that didn't fit into the other 38 <laughs> episodes. I don't know about all of them, John. We had a lot all of ideas of for shows. Um, but yeah, we'll talk about Peter Cushing, uh, Trevor Martin. No, we won't talk about Trevor and, Martin. And, and we're, we're hoping to perform the uh, K9 and Company theme tune. Oh, live, yes. So we'll see. Yeah, that's all that. Now let's do prizes. Prizes, prizes, prizes. Now, there was some confusion last month because, yes, things went astray. Should we do the listener one first? Oh, you want to do the listener one? Here first? We can do the listener one first. Why not? 
Okay, so the listener is getting... This is actually getting a thing that we didn't even announce. We do have a copy of the Doctor Who Revisitation set one, which does contain the Paul McGann what? telly movie. This, no, that, that's not for the listener, though. Yeah, that's for the listener. I thought, yeah, the, yeah, listener was, I thought the listener was getting this. Yeah, and that. Look at that as well. Oh, that. Oh, it's, yeah, a, yeah, it's, yeah. A, mega, it's a mega listener prize. It's a mega prize. listener prize, because that's due to our good friends at, um, at BBC on DVD who didn't manage to get it to us before <laughs> the last show, but we've got it now. So we're giving it away anyway. Plus, we're giving it away a DVD of The Chimes of Midnight, the CD. big finish. CD. CD, yeah. CD Chimes of Midnight. Ooh. Of the big finish, Chimes of Midnight, excellent story. It's very good. Um, so, all right, so Karen, I'll get you to help me. So this is impartial. Can you can you draw out one of the little scraps of paper in there? So this is someone listening. This is someone who listened to our last episode, Eight Science, and left a comment on the website. Oh my goodness, the winner is Sarah B. Sarah B. Is Sarah B here? No, it looks here. like we're paying postage, John. <laughs> <laughs> but congratulations, Sarah B. Yay! <laughs> We have, we have sent these prizes all around the world now. We have, yes. We had yes, one in yes. America, one in the UK. New Zealand. One in yeah. New Zealand. That's the whole world. That's the whole world. Done. Um, <laughs> that is not the whole world. That is, that is not the and whole And if world. you're listening to this episode right now in your head and you want to win a prize, you can win a copy of Doctor Who, the complete first series. Somewhat confusingly. That is, uh, yeah. Starring Christopher Eccleston. Eccleston. So a box there of Christopher Eccleston will go out to you. All you have to do is leave a comment on the blog under 9 slash women. When this episode comes out on the 23rd. And Please we don't will confusing. choose one next month. Don't confusingly leave it under one of the other episodes because some people seem to have done that. It took me forever to figure out who'd commented on what. So now just we, wait till the episode comes out. Comment on that. We also have another copy of Series 1 on DVD that we're going to give away to our favourite question. And being this, there are so many of them um, we'll dive into them and figure out which one is our favourite by the time the we end. get to the end. Yeah. I think. What does the panel think of the idea that Eccleston's strength is in his brevity, like a band that broke up before it could go shitty <laughs> and release a crap album? That is a pretty great question. That is a good question. Um, do, we, do we think that, you know, we, we do think Eccleston's so good because he didn't have time to get crap? I think there's a definite possibility. I mean, that's got to be an, an aspect of it. Um, the other thing I was doing the other day, watching Aliens of London, um, imagine if we hadn't had Eccleston as the first Doctor. They'd just started with David Tennant and he'd done it for four years. The regeneration would actually become a real shock to people. It would, I think, have been a much harder sell. The fact that they got a regeneration in in the first year, which is one of those key Doctor Who things, mm. um, I think it's actually really important they did that as early as possible. Um, yeah, and, I yeah, agree. knowing that it was going to be short-lived... It did make, maybe make you appreciate that era a bit more. I don't know. I, I was keen on an idea, which I, I understand for even just financial reasons, no one would do this, but if they changed the Doctor every year, like how great would that be? It would be hilarious. Because Helen Mirren would have done it by now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like that, yeah, because you just... Because, yeah, look, we don't even want to be on but, the bill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Have you been the doctor? Everyone gets to be the doctor once. Yeah, it'd be great. <laughs> Everyone in Britain. <laughs> they could have a lottery. <laughs> They'd have had an Australian one by now. Yeah. Well, there's a, I, think, I think you're right that the, the Eccleston season, um, as John was saying earlier, functions as a kind of condensed primer for everyone who's never seen Old Who. And so it really references lots of things and it's kind of... But it does it very skillfully without being like exposition, 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 you know. It's, it's very clever that things like starts with nothing and then just slowly introduces the things you need to know. Yeah, and little yeah. nods that I think were enough for the old um, Who fans to feel as though they were being catered to, you know. Um, the little winks like the wheelie bin 
that was clearly just being pushed along by somebody. You know, that kind of, that, that was the most old who kind of touch, I thought, in the first um, episode. But then th- there were all of these kind of um, shorthands to help you understand all of the Doctor Who universe. So that final episode has Daleks, <laughs> has um, the companion and the leaves and then comes back. It has an existential crisis of the Doctor deciding whether or not to destroy the entire known universe or not. And a regeneration. And it's why people will still say the really good starting points are either the 11th hour or actually going all the way back to to Rose and starting there. It's a really good, it's still a great jumping on point. Leading on from that, really, how much of the success of the new series comes from learning from the mistakes of the Paul McGann movie? Now, Karen, I'm interested in your opinion because I know... No, no, I don't think you listened to our last episode. None of us liked it either. (laughs) I mean, we like Paul McGann and we like certain things about it, but as a film... I love Paul McGann. He's great, right? But what... what that has... m- movie is nightmarishly unwatchable. <laughs> ben lent it to me so that I could, you know, prepare for it. And I was so excited to see it because I was like, Paul McGann, Doctor Who, yeah. And like, you know, 10 minutes in, I was like, so shit. Like, I couldn't believe how bad it was. And I had to, it was excruciating to keep watching. Um, and, and even though Grace was amazing and, you know, there were all these kind of cool things happening, but it's so dated, obviously, to that time. And it's so, um, it's so uh, you know, clunky and ham-fisted. Everything about it, you know, is... Yeah, I can understand why people were really scared about the new coming back and not being quite right because it didn't... It didn't do it for me, but... I think it's important that um, the generation of writers, like the first season, um, the Christopher Eccleston season, is almost all written by people who had been very long-term Doctor Who fans, as well as making a career in TV. So this is a whole generation of men who were traumatised by the TV movie. <laughs> That's, is that why... Yeah, and is that why Eccleston... It's important. Paul McGann wanted to have his hair sh- short and wear the leather jacket and nobody would let him because that's not Doctor Who. Um, that's so, yeah. why Eccleston has PTSD. <laughs> <laughs> Because yeah. he missed the telly movie. Yeah. Because he saw the telly movie. Because yeah. he saw the telly movie. And, it's uh, true. Yeah. I really want to be able to print it and put a sticker on the front that says, Nightmarishly Unwatchable. <laughs> Karen Pickering. Karen Pickering. <laughs> this is, I think, the final question on Eccleston specifically, before we get into women, from the look of it, uh, from Katie. Can you please talk about the pacing of New Who? For example, each story is one or two 45-minute episodes instead of four or six half-hour episodes, each ending in a cliffhanger. As a fan of the classic of New Who, I kind of miss the old format. I do miss cliffhangers because they were such a, a pivotal part of Doctor Who originally and there's kind of not really room for them Yeah. Now. One thing that you told me that was interesting when we were researching this is that they only put those next week bits at the end because the, the episodes weren't quite short. long enough. Yeah, yeah. And I hate short. those bits. I hate yeah. them. Like, don't show me what's good. And, and I remember when they first aired it, they didn't even think to put that after the credits when there was a cliffhanger at the mm. end of part one of a two-parter. And people complained. They're like, you just showed us how the cliffhanger ends. <laughs> yeah. You yeah, idiots. Ne- next week, they're alive. Yeah. You know, but it, it takes the edge off. It's kind of like the opposite of, you know, like it made me, it made me cringe because I realised Star Trek had done better cliffhangers because they had ones that ended and then they didn't tell you what happened for like a whole year. Because <laughs> that was the only time they ever did them. It's important to, to note that as well as being you know, having a lot of really good bits, season one was really when they were learning how to do it and Aliens of London, they made a lot... It was their first filming block. They made a lot of mistakes and that was one of them. They, they stuffed up cliffhangers and then I think it could be argued that 
New Who has actually ruined cliffhangers <laughs> many times over. Yeah. Um, probably Russell T Davies in specifically has ruined many cliffhangers. Well, um, although... And it's interesting they have done away with them completely in the latest se- series, which I've got to say, though, that my favourite ever cliffhanger of all Doctor Who is from Christopher Eccleston's series because it has the best resolution, which is The Empty Child, The Doctor Dances. Yeah. 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 I think that's such a great cliffhanger because it's... It is frightening. Like, it's the, the child is so creepy and you just don't know how they're going to get out of it. They're trapped in a room. It's very immediate and visceral. Um, you've, you're looking at the outcome of what will happen if they touch you. All they have to do is touch you. They don't even have to, you know, eat you or anything. Um, and then the resolution is so brilliant. It comes out of nowhere. And after the doctor does it, he goes, well, I'm glad that worked. <laughs> Those would have been rubbish last words. I'm like, yes! Yeah. That's so good. That's also my favourite Eccleston story, that, that oh, two-part. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I do find the yeah. two-parters... so good. Generally, they, they have more room to breathe, I find mm-hmm. the two-parters, to me. Uh, even, even Aliens of London, which I hate because it's farty aliens, I still think moves better than a lot of those other stories because mm-hmm. it just has the time to get into the story without having to go, bam! And you look at something like um, School Reunion, it actually starts basically into the story because it's the only way to tell the story. Like, the Doctor and Companion have to already be part of the story when we join it just to be able to condense that amount of narrative. Really, it's the cold open has become the new cliffhanger and they've now, they now write stories so that you get a really good cliffhanger five minutes, you know, between three and five minutes into the action mm-hmm. uh, to make up for the fact that we don't get really good ones anymore. I think the trouble with the, the two-parters is that it's, there's either always too many or, or never quite enough because you only get a couple per season um, and it puts a lot of pressure on them because I think it's important to remember that in the old days a lot of cliffhangers were quite shitty too. Like there were a lot of bad cliffhangers. We all remember the good ones. There were some really bad ones because, you know, in a seven-episode story they're not all going to be gems. <laughs> yeah. Um, Even in a four-episode story, like in the brain of Morbius, no. Sarah goes, oh, no, it's Morbius, it's a horrible monster. And then the resolution of the cliffhanger is she just lets the curtain go. Yeah. And can't see it there anymore. It's like, oh, of, problem solved. There are a lot of very bad... Bad ones. Death of the um, Daleks is my favourite, in which the yeah. doctor, the doctor is disappointed by some flooring. <laughs> he just goes, "No, I don't like that line though." And it's like it's, it's just they had to move the end of the episode, so it, it genuinely isn't a cliffhanger. It's, it's just a random moment. <laughs> They were also, um, we had, had the extra bonus of watching back in, in the day, uh, in, the, in the 80s, when they would show an episode was that we, we in Australia, we would have a, a commentator, an announcer, who would come in to announce what was coming up next or the news or whatever, and he'd obviously be watching the show and would sometimes comment on it. Yeah. And my favourite is still, I think it was, a, I don't remember which episode, I think it was a John Pertwee and the cliffhanger rolled and the credits rolled and the announcer just went, gosh. <laughs> Bends into chapter 13 of the questions. Yeah. Which one? Well, I've, next one I've given to Petra. <laughs> <laughs> this is Psychic Paper. What's the question you'd most like us to ask? You had one, I think, didn't you, Petra? Given the current or incoming Australian political climate, will this episode actually get to air given that it's about women? <laughs> Uh, I, I think I, I... I mean, I'm, I'm really surprised that you've let me even talk. <laughs> I, don't think, I, th- I don't think that... You know, Tony Abbott doesn't hate women. He... 
He has, he look has at all those many beautiful daughters. Yeah. He's like the doctor with the companions following him around. He doesn't, he doesn't hate women. He owns four of them, you know. Like, can I ask oh, yeah. the other panel? What you two have said, some of your favourite Christopher Eccleston lines. I want to hear some of the, you know, like your favourite bits of Eccleston, your favourite Eccleston bits. I mean, wow. He does get his shirt off in Dalek. You all, that was, that was cheap. You shouldn't have, you shouldn't have laughed at that. But. I, mentioned, um, I mentioned before about that really abusive moment in that episode and it was kind of... That entire episode was actually built around him doing everything he possibly could to not have it come to that resolution where she would end up losing her father again. So it was kind of... That saving grace thing was one of the most wonderful moments. I did like the banter between him and Captain Jack as well. (laughs) I think Rose is a really underrated episode, the first one, because it really does set up... I mean, obviously there are a few, you know, wheelie-bin issues. Um, (laughs) But it sets up so much of what this show is going to be and the whole thing of, like, he grabs her hand and he says, run, and they run, and that basically, that's the show. I I think it's wonderful that they made that explicit... Because it used to just be a joke that they run up and down corridors. And I love that they said, no, no, that's the theme, people. The theme is running. And it's true. So now, now we've got some questions about women in Doctor Who. Um, there's a few that, that has similar themes, so I picked one that I think sort of sums them up. Is the problem of the weakness of most female companions, I don't know, it, most is online, I don't know if it is most, but of those female companions who have a problem with being presented as weak, is that also a problem of most male companions, like Rory and Mickey and Adric. And t- someone said Turlow. When is... <laughs> T- Turlow was a murderer. That's quite different. Yeah. <laughs> a war criminal of some sort. <laughs> um, so what do, we, what do we think about that? I mean, there's only... Obviously, in the modern series, our main two examples are Mickey and Rory because Jack is never really presented as weak. Harry uh, oh, Harry's... Uh, Someone in the, in the gods has shouted Harry Sullivan. Harry's stupid, isn't he? Yeah, Harry's presented, Harry is presented as an idiot. I yeah. think it's worth noting that both Mickey and Rory level up in very traditional macho ways yeah. and that was the point at which fandom embraced them. Like, that was the, which at which, the point at which you started hearing people saying really nice things about them. The point at which um, Mickey started toting guns and Rory started being all, you know, last centurion. And as soon as they started becoming more traditionally masculine and heroic in that way they were embraced by the audience in a way they weren't when they were the boyfriend who was perhaps seen as less important and a little bit weaker than the main girl. I mean, I love the early writing of Rory and Amy. I think it's fascinating that she is the heroic one and he is the nurturing one. And I think that's a brilliant dynamic. Uh, and it was a little bit disappointing to me that everybody started jumping on the We Love Rory train round about the time he got a big sword. Mm. <laughs> So to speak. It's, it's too easy, people. It's too easy. <laughs> they love it. <laughs> sort of leads into something I wanted to, to bring up, just thinking about the difference between new who and old who again. But it's this idea that people sort of say that the female characters are more developed now. And because we've spent this year going back through it, I thought it was interesting that I feel that the women in Doctor Who now are defined by their relationships with men in a way that they weren't back in the day. And again, I don't think this is deliberate. I think it's just a way that television making has changed. The stories, you couldn't tell love stories on Doctor Who back in the 60s and 70s, really. So, but it also meant that then the characters just became independent of the Doctor. Like, those characters are going to leave Doctor Who, the series, and they're going to leave the Doctor, the character, and go on with their lives. And I think that's why in School Reunion, I'm sure there's a question in there about School Reunion, the character of Sarah Jane Smith gets retconned in this 
altogether creepy way. So they can say this thing that being the companion is like being the wife of a doctor, and when you leave, it's like being the ex, and she's withered away and died. And we're going, no, no, we know Sarah Jane. And she was kicker. Yeah, she and had the companions a job. She... often kind of subtly pitted against one another. Yeah, yeah, because that's, well. that's what chicks do. You know, yeah, like, Scratching you know, with yeah. Martha and, and Rose. I mean, Martha's, you know, really a complex character but in a way you know really badly written and badly you know um badly realized but you know they they were were always trying to pit them against one another that one companion would be jealous of the other the other's you know role in the doctor's life and that's why donna was so amazing because not only was she not defined by until the end well so yes but Ah. doesn't donna get punished for being you know that donna donna isn't defined by her relationship with the doctor nor nor any men really and the closest the closest man well, she, in her life is her is her grandfather. But, she, but there's a point that she comes in as a bride and she leaves as a bride. She's defined yeah. by men at the beginning sure, and the sure, end. Sure, yeah. that, is, that is her entire journey is from a man through a man to a man. But all like the bits it's in the middle bride. are the interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's when she's not getting married. <laughs> <laughs> But that I think we just like know, in real life. want to hang out with her. You know, no, there's nothing wrong with getting married, but I just think it's 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 that she she left that life and that she goes back to that life because her memories are raised. You know, like that's horrible. That's, that's horrible. Yeah, that's, yeah, it's a kind of terrible thing. Like I think it's a tragic end for Donna mm-hmm. that she grew grew so much and then was actually kind of put back into a or give it, given a different reality that was She much was smaller. put in her place. Yeah, exactly. My, Became a bride again. My reaction yeah, you're right. at the end of that episode was just when it turned off, we were all very quiet and I just said, I'm so cross. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Have you found the crossness actually doesn't go away? No. no. matter how t- many times you can re-watch it, you still get like, cross all over again? It's never yeah. gone away. No. Um, I think the, the question of um, whether the companions are defined by their relationship with men or with the Doctor is, is worth considering. The thing about a lot of the classic who companions is their characters weren't defined. Um, and that's that's the thing. A lot of them, they weren't given much at all. I've just finished reading Elizabeth Sladen's um, autobiography, which is fascinating. And one of the things she talks about is the little amount of ten- attention given to the actress playing the companion. And sometimes it's a script. And we always talk about scripts, like whether the scripts are strong or weak or whatever. But she talked about the directing and the fact that most people who came in to direct for Doctor Who weren't interested in directing actors at all. Those who were interested in directors in directing actors were interested in directing the star who was the Doctor or whatever male guest star there was. So for the most part, for her experience, being a companion pretty much meant directing herself and figuring out for herself how to do it. And I've heard that from a lot of actresses who played the companions over the years. Mm. Louise Jameson is a really good example of somebody who had to fight for their companion, often rewriting scripts because they were written by people who didn't understand the character. Um, And so a lot of the time it was the actresses defining the role themselves and putting a lot more on the screen than was in the script. I I feel that's possibly true too Mm. with Martha in particular because I think her first few stories she's really good. And I almost suspect it's as the gruelling shooting schedule goes on and the actor herself can't perhaps fight as much or put as much into them, mm. and is well, left just, just with the script. Getting that given, is given shitty storylines. But, that, but that's the <laughs> thing. But, but it could well be the scripts aren't getting worse. Mm. It could just no. be that she can't transcend them by no. putting the stuff in that needs. Like to Like some them scripts, better. it's only one or two lines. Like School Reunion, if you mentally edit out about three lines, that episode is perfect. And it's the same with Martha. Pretty much, that you can edit out one or two sentences from each of Freeman Agman's episodes and they're fine it's just that there's always one or two little lines of oh and you're not as good as rose and you go oh and like it's not doesn't actually define her character i don't feel like there's a lot of really good episodes that she has it's just that you have that one moment in the episode 
which just makes you want to weep. But does that make that moment when she walks away and says, you know, I'm never going to be good enough for you, I'm paraphrasing here, but she walks away and she's very strong. Does she is, but I actually get quite cross about that, that people always say, oh, look, that's the point at which you know, she's so defined by her relationship with the doctor or her crush on the doctor. That's not why she leaves him. That's the secondary reason that she gives for leaving. She leaves him to take care of her family. And she says that. And then she goes, oh, and by the way, before I go, and then she tells him that too. And that's sort of part of the reason. But, yeah, I don't know. I think it's a very strong moment for her. But she has a lot of strong moments that we kind of forget about because there are so many cringeworthy moments in the episodes that if they just snipped like that bit out and that bit out, I think she would have she, she would have a much better legacy as a companion and people would remember the strong parts and not just the crush part. But Yeah, I find I get really, really stuck on the cringeworthy parts <laughs> with her. That's understandable. And it, it might be it might be that black female sort of link there, but I had such high hopes because, you know, it was an incredibly intelligent woman and a black woman coming in, highly educated medical student. I thought that this could have been amazing. And then there's all those scenes where it's, you know, her and Jack talking about, oh, you too. And yeah, Yeah. Yeah. it was incredibly disappointing. It was really, really disappointing. And you're completely right about how she left, but it's sort of like burnt in my Mm. mind that she left because she couldn't handle being in that sort of environment anymore because they'd set it up so much like that. The doctor would never love her as much as he loved Mm. Rose. The horrible parts are so memorable that honestly it is all people remember of the character and I think it's such a shame because, you know, watching the stories... If, like me, you have a really good mental edit <laughs> function, there's so much good that she does. She's such a useful companion. She's so practical. She contributes to the stories really well. Somebody had gone through and said, no, that line makes you look like a dick. Don't put that one in the yeah, episode yeah. for every episode. Actually, back to the psychic paper question, because I was going to ask... <laughs> no, because I wanted to ask about uh, female writers on Doctor Who, because it's been a big thing that it's had virtually none. Mm-hmm. And since New Who, I believe it's one writer has written four yeah. episodes. Yeah. The only person who's, who's written. And she wrote. And, it, and I don't. And look, I don't think this is. I don't know how to explain this because I've read stuff of hers that's really good, but she wrote Daleks in Manhattan. Yeah. <laughs> and However, it, she wrote Daleks in Manhattan, and therefore no woman has ever been allowed to write for New Who again. That's not her no fault. No men ever write bad episodes. Oh. That yeah, no, I, I think Ben's comment was more that she's written good stuff, so we don't know why did that particular one yeah. fail. So, uh, yeah, but, I don't know why. But I was going to say, apart from the fact that you I'm going clearly... to go ahead and say it probably wasn't anything to do with her vagina. No, no, I, <laughs> I agree. Look, I would call. say it's true unless she was typing with her vagina, <laughs> which could have caused these problems. In which case, she 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 should be congratulated because that sounds really hard. That's a skill. Uh, I saw it as unprofessional, but you saw it as a talent. I think that's. That's lovely. Um, I was like, wow. No, but I was going to say, but okay. I actually really like Helen Rayner's second two-parter, the, the yeah. Sontaran one, and one of the things that's really good about that... Um, ...is that it's one of the very few examples in you who, of getting two women in the TARDIS, uh, and they don't actually get in the TARDIS, but, you know, you've got two female companions... You very rarely get that combination in New Who, and I love it. And, and of course, she also took the moment to 
um, correct for what had happened in the past mm. by having Martha and Donna actually see each other, like each other, and think, oh, we've got something in common, let's save the world together. It's as like the opposite to of the school jealous. reunion scene, isn't it? It's like taking the, the inverse of the school reunion scene of the whole scratching yeah, your eyes out. This I, is I feel actually there are doing... a lot of stories in you who that are kind of working quite hard to correct old ones. <laughs> and the trouble is we have DVDs now, so you can't do that. <laughs> what do you think... Uh, a film I could bring to the show that is is missing right now? Would it just be stronger characters, more female characters? Just uh, perspective. I mean, I, I don't think a female... A female writer is not automatically going to be better, mm-hmm. but I think it's worth looking at the pattern and saying, well, it would be nice. Doctor Who is such a weird and wonderful show. There is just so much possibility there. Why not shake it up a bit and not just have... Um, the, the people who are... I mean, obviously, when you're doing something like that under pressure, you get in the people that you know who you, are, you can rely on to write scripts, and that's what's happened. You know, that's generally what happens. The people who are brought in are either really <laughs> close friends of the showrunner yeah. or they have run their own show. So it's Having like that, a law firm or a bank. Yeah, exactly. It's way. very yeah. much... It is the, that kind of old boys network. Mm. And it's the network which what happens, happens yeah. between men. Yeah. But also there are some great female script writers in Britain, and I think it would be really exciting to see what would happen if you brought in people who weren't known for science fiction? The trouble is they don't have many female scriptwriters who have experience with science fiction because most female scriptwriters look at a lot of the science fiction and the roles for women and they're like, yeah, I think I'll just write drama, thank you. Like, it hasn't been very welcoming. But Russell T Davies made Queer as Folk and Doctor Who, so clearly he wasn't being held back by typecasting in terms of what scripts he could write. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, people ask this question of me in lots of different contexts all the time. Like, do you do you want to see more women in Parliament? Do you want to see more women on Neighbours? Do you want to see more women writers of Doctor Who? And really, I could... Neighbours ca- still running. Yeah. <laughs> I love Neighbours, right? But I could really care less if there were more women. Mm-hmm. I would rather see more feminist writers. Mm-hmm. I would rather see more writers of any gender that had a sensibility that actually cared about you know, gender or, and race and class and sexuality and different things that, that you know, are part of our world and therefore they're, they're part of this universe too. And they, they, you know, Martha was such a lost opportunity in a way because she was this young woman from a, an upper middle class black family in Britain. You know, yeah, like it was yeah. so, it was, I wanted them to kind of explore that more in the way that they did a little bit with Rose. Celeste, just if I made you showrunner of Doctor Who, what would you change? What would you... Oh, maybe I I get, and I apologise, I get very fixated on the whole sort of setting up. It seems to me that a lot of the Doctor Who and the romanticism of space and time travel ends up there needing to be some sort of secondary romanticism between the characters. So I try and work with that a bit and actually create a scenario where they don't need to bring in companions that have to have some sort of romantic moment. It was like there was the Donna character and that was it. All of them have had that sort of thing, including, you know, some of the men they're brought in, like Captain Jack. It's, it's an ongoing sort of thing. I, I wonder if they have trouble um, actually setting up the show, the romanticism of space and time travel, without actually showing that in a romantic sort of character relationship. So, yeah, I'd, I'd work at breaking that down a bit and I'd also... I don't know, I might move Gwen across from Torchwood over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, 
that. She wouldn't go though. I reckon. Do you I reckon she'd go? I would really love it if um, if Gwen's daughter ended up being a Doctor Who companion someday. Yes. I think that would be brilliant. So thinking of showrunners still though. Uh, Potentially controversial question. Is Stephen Moffat the worst thing to happen to depiction of women in Doctor Who? <laughs> so we've had yes and no from the audience. <laughs> We're going to talk about it slightly more nuanced than that. <laughs> I love the fact it's a yes-no question, apparently. <laughs> yeah. is, is he the worst thing to happen to women in Doctor Who? In terms of the making of the show. Silence. He hasn't been great. <laughs> I, I think obviously it can't be a, a question that you answer with yes or no. I'm going to say yes. I don't care. I, I, say I don't think so. I mean, I think he's got a terrible woman problem and I'm on record as saying that and that's, um, that if I, were, if, if I was the showrunner of Doctor Who, that would mean Stephen Moffat wasn't anymore. And that would be really good. That would be a really good start. Um, but I don't care, you know, who it is as long as they don't hate women, you know. Um, I think he's got a really really odd kind of, you know, and watching shows like Sherlock and other shows of his alongside um, Doctor Who is, is really informative and interesting. You see these connections. I think he's pretty bad. <laughs> Celeste? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, but yeah, that's, yeah, I've, I've found pretty much the same. I haven't watched a great deal of his mm. other stuff, admittedly, but I've really been disappointed over and over again with how women are used on the show. So, yeah. And I'd stop calling them companions. Yeah. That might be controversial. That's our fault. That's, that's fandom's was, fault. But if I was the showrunner, I'd stop... I'd, I'd excise the word companion. I'd be like, that's... Companion means literally like a, a, an addendum, like it's a, it's a, a sidekick. Well, it's be- something... Before that, they were called assistants a lot, which is probably worse in a way. But, and they well, never used we'll to... just come up with something else. Yeah. <laughs> they never used to be called that in the show, and I find this really... And it's partly you know, the way that the show has now become a bit meta in that it refers to... It's aware of its own legacy, yeah. and this happens, which is the thing I hate a lot about the show now... Um, Self-referential. It's self-referential, but Mm. not just self-referential to the history within the universe of the show, but self-referential and aware of the fandom and the narrative Mm. around the show in the real world. Mm. Because the Doctor now, and you hear this a lot more, say, in a Big Finish uh, audio or something, he he refers to the people who travel with him as his companions. That's weird. He never did that before. He used to call them his friends. And this came in in the 80s. He does a lot of the time, though. I mean, it doesn't happen as often as you think it does. It, 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 does have, it does turn up occasionally in the show and it is weird when it happens. But he does often say, this is my friend. Uh, it's just an that, associate? He's, they, yeah, he says, says you know, Rose um, he, he's, he, he comes up with all sorts of words. He very rarely consciously uses companion. Mm. And in fact, I'm pretty sure the first time they did companion, somebody did interpret it as some sort of sex thing. It's the police officer. Yeah. It's a sexual relationship. Mm. And, and right, yeah. yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, it doesn't happen that often. But of course, it's become so much part of the fan law and the meta of the show that that's how they're built. I think one of the really interesting things of, about the companions is the way that um, the female companions are always considered by the media to be the real ones and the male ones aren't. And, yes, they are given longer contracts and they're there for longer in New Who, but there is this sense where if you have... I mean, I love it when there's three, uh, two companions in the TARDIS with the Doctor. I think it's a much better vibe and much more interesting interplay. And whenever, um, but the media are constantly presenting the, the, this ideal of the Doctor and one companion, which really only happened in the seventies and eighties, basically. And that, but that's why they and keep talking about it. It's yeah. because the Doctor Who now 
is very much based on people's imagined imagination mm. and memories of what they think Doctor Who used to be like. And Absolutely. people who are, you know, average Doctor Who watchers who haven't watched it for 20 years, they remember, was well, the Doctor and Joe or the Doctor and Sarah Jane running around the universe saving the planets and stuff. And then you go back and watch it, like, that almost never happened, <laughs> except for a very specific era that everybody remembers and romanticises. But the show is much bigger than that and can encompass a whole lot more than that, particularly when it comes to the female characters in the show. Absolutely. I think it's one of the things where the perceptions of the show really, and sometimes do actually, Affect. I mean, we we can't say that it's not affecting the show that it's now being made by people who loved it when they were kids. I mean, that also happened in the eighties, but you know, we're, we're more of aware of it now. Um, I, actually, I I quite like a lot of Stephen Moffat's stories, I have to say, <laughs> but I do think, and I don't think it's controversial to say that he's a much better scriptwriter than he is a showrunner. Mm. Um, I think that some of the biggest problems that have happened in his era have been ones that. Could like you look back on it and say it could so easily have been fixed? Like a lot of them are things where it's just little things here and yep, there that I were agree. missed. Yeah, and I think partly they were missed because the people in charge of making those decisions didn't see them, and they yeah. didn't see the or problem. Were they missed, or were they just willfully ignored? Well, I don't know. I mean, like for instance, <laughs> I know a lot of people have you know a lot of problems with with Amy's arc in season six. And a lot of things that happen and the fact that, you know, she and Rory lose a baby and then it's not mentioned for half a season. Mm. I have problems with that. Mostly I have problems because as a writer, I can watch those episodes and see where one line, one scene, one look could have been inserted Mm. to make that work in a way that it doesn't currently work. And it's really frustrating me to see, for me to see those really easy... Again, it's like editing School Reunion for Sarah Jane. These really easy fixes that would have made such a massive difference. One of the, the big problems with River Song is that one line when she says she becomes an archaeologist because she's looking for a good doctor. It's a joke. It's a gag. It's a throwaway line at the end of an episode. But for so many people, it was a punch to the stomach. Mm. And the people in charge of making those decisions didn't see that. They didn't see that that joke was actually really not funny. And partly it's because a lot of the people making the show have a very specific way of seeing the world. And I think they did see it and they do see it and they just don't care. And that's the thing is that, like, you you bring up a really good point, which is not just it's the things that are left out, but the things that go in that you, sometimes you just shake your head. You just think, whose fucking idea was it for Amy Pond to be a strippergram? You know, what idiot didn't nix that in at, at the early stage and just say, let's just, that's just stupid. There's just no purpose for it. We can easily make it something else. Um, why does Christopher, why, why, does, why is gay used as a term of abuse in the first season in order to be like down with the lingo of the kids? You know, all these decisions that you just go, oh my God, why do all the villains in Aliens of London have to be fat? You know, like why? Because they think... It's funny. They're not idiots. They know that it's provocative. They know that it's not PC, but they just think, oh, fuck it. I like it and I'm in charge and I'll do it. And that's the, that's the vibe you get from Stephen Moffat. Not that he's some, like, babe in the woods who doesn't realise how offensive it all is. He wrote Coupling. He wrote, you know, other stuff that where he knows the extent of what his power is to, you know, offend and whatever, but he just doesn't care. 
We are totally, <laughs> totally running out of time. Yeah. Thank you, um, though. I just want to get that out. We could, we could go on for ages. Like, we could it's talk so about good. non-companion characters. We could talk about all kinds of stuff. But there's one question that we do have to ask before we go. What is it, John? Oh, it was written down earlier. Female doctor, yes or no? Well, I'm going to say yes out it's loud for the podcast. podcast. Okay. Can, Tilda can Swinton, Helen Mirren, Judy Dench. Come on. Someone, nice. someone yeah. more affordable. <laughs> Olivia Holman. Is she the one in Broadchurch? Yeah. Yep. She's great. I she's think amazing. she'd be great. Celeste? Um, Celeste, yes? Your choices? No? Uh, yeah, I've always wondered why the hell hasn't it happened? Why is it such a stretch to even consider it? And I think it's because of the romantic um, dynamic. But, yeah, I've been a big, huge supporter of a female doctor. Why not? Tansy? Mm-hmm. I think every time it doesn't happen, it makes it feel a bit further away, and it's such a shame. There's no reason for it not to happen, but every time it doesn't happen, it's such a shame, because we don't just... I don't just want one female doctor. Mm. Yeah. I think one female doctor would actually be quite yeah. disappointing well, because... Like one female pres- Prime Minister. Well, it's <laughs> actually, it's a lot like the pressure that it puts on that one to be yeah. the female one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And how horrible would it be if we had a female doctor and, you know, some of the scripts weren't great and maybe... I mean, obviously, you know, if the doctor... The doctor always works. The doctor is always awesome. But the pressure that it would put on that one female is ridiculous. Yeah. We'd actually have to have many female doctors to see the many ways in which it could work. Oh, Helen Mirren and, you know, Maggie Smith and Judy Dench. Tamsin Grieg. Absolutely. It's incredibly yeah. irritating that they've referenced That's that it's choice, happened though. in the background throughout the show. They've talked about it in the show about, you know, a doctor being a female doctor and he with feels different bits. Yeah, sure they've, they've actually boobs. done that, but they've never shown it. So they're willing to play with it as a sort of gimmicky idea, but actually take it to that next level. I feel we're owed 12. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so can we thank all of our guests? Karen Pickering, Celeste Little, Tansy Rayner-Roberts. Would you like to do the homework for us, please, Petra? Your homework, should you choose to accept it, is the following. For David Tennant's Tenth Doctor, we suggest watching The Girl in the Fireplace, The Shakespeare Code and Partners in Crime. To experience the spectrum of sex and relationships in Doctor Who, we suggest The Green Death, Bad Wolf, The Parting of the Ways, Human Nature, The Family of Blood, The Unicorn and the Wasp, and The Name of the Doctor. Just need to explain what's going to happen here. Now, we had a musical act. (laughs) They were all organised. Until what time last night, Ben? Oh, I don't know. Late. Yes, late last night turned out the a cappella group we had booked would not be available after all. So uh, instead of an a cappella group performing Toxic by Britney Spears, <laughs> which of course is a song that is prominently featured in a Christopher Eccleston episode, uh, instead I will be doing my William Shatner version of it. John, John, I've got to correct you. I've got to correct you. This is Splendid Chaps. You're not doing a William Shatner version, you're doing a John Pertwee version. I am. So, I will be Pertweeing Toxic by Britney Spears, accompanied with actual genuine singing by Petra Elliott. Uh, and we have a very, very high-tech backing track as well. Now, let's, let's see if we can make this work. Mm-hmm. 
Baby, can't you see I'm calling? A guy like you should wear a warning. It's dangerous. I'm falling. There's no escape. I can't wait. I need a hit. Baby, give me it. You're dangerous. I'm loving it. Too high. Can't come down. Losing the head. Spinning round and round. Do you feel me now? Ding, 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 ding. With the taste of your lips, I'm all right. You're toxic and I'm sipping on oh, yes. the taste of a poison paradise. I'm, I'm addicted, addicted to you. you. Don't you know no that you're toxic? toxic? You should have some kind of government warning label. Getting late to give you up. I took a sip from a devil's cup. Slowly, it's taking over me. I feel it taking over you, babe. Too high, can't come down. It's in the air and it's all around. Hello? Can you feel me now? Ding, 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 ding. With the Of your lips, I'm on a ride. You're toxic, and I'm slipping under with the taste of a poison paradise. I'm addicted to you. Don't you know that you're toxic? Really, you should get that checked. It just doesn't seem right. You're like some kind of crazy frog or something. I had to leave the stage because after about a minute of that, I had an overwhelming urge to try twerking and I just... <laughs> that is inappropriate, Ben. Get off the stage. So I did. Every show ends with a musical act whether you want it to or not. <laughs> but until next time... Oh, yeah. Thank, thank you. you. It's, it's good. Keep warm. Yeah. 
been listening to Splendid Chats. We'd like to thank this episode's Splendid Chats, Karen Pickering, Celeste Little, and Tansy Rainer Roberts. Your hosts were Ben McKenzie and John Richards. The audio engineering and theme tune were created by the technical wizardry of David Ashton from Sample and Hold Studios. You can find us at SplendidChaps.com and at Splendid Chaps on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Petra Elliott, and until next time, thank you. It's good. Keep warm. <laughs>